Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Kevin Orphan, president at Sharp Corporation. Kevin has been in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry for over 30 years and has incredible experience in contract manufacturing. He began his career at Abbott Laboratories before joining Hospira, moving on to Pfizer Center One before joining Sharp about a year ago. Hey, Kevin, welcome to the show. Hi, Ramon. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. And uh, just to start off with, Kevin, it'd be great um, if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself uh, and what you do at Sharp. Well, as you just mentioned, Ramon, uh, I am the president of Sharp Corporation. I'll give you a little background in terms of uh, Sharp. I've been with the company for about 15 months now and have responsibility for essentially two big business segments within Sharp, uh, one of which we refer to as our commercial packaging business. We have packaging sites primarily focused on pharmaceuticals. We do do some medical devices, but mostly pharma. And our sites are in uh, Pennsylvania in the United States. So we have a site in uh, Allentown in Bethlehem, as well as in a city outside of Philadelphia called Conchahokan. Uh, we also have three commercial packaging sites in Europe, both in Belgium and the Netherlands. And the other segment of our business is clinical supply materials, uh, as well as uh, support of clinical trials in terms of formulation development and uh, manufacturing of some uh, solid oral dose configurations as well for clinical trials. And we have two sites, uh, one in the U.S. and Pennsylvania as well, and another in the U.K. So I've got oversight for the, uh, the business overall. And just uh, real quick, Sharp is a, uh, owned by a publicly traded company called UDG. Uh, UDG is based in Dublin and is traded on the London Stock Exchange as part of the FTSE 250. Very good. So it's uh, quite the business that you look after then. <laughs> and and how did you how did you get into the pharmaceutical sector? So what was your kind of route from uh, you know school and college? And and if you want to go even back before then, kind of where did you grow up? And just kind of curious of how you ended up in the sector. Sure. Uh, so I'm originally from Madison, Wisconsin, and yes, I am a cheesehead. Um, <laughs> I. <laughs> I did go to uh, Valparaiso University, which is in Indiana, and have a BS in business administration and finance. I started after I got out of school for a very short period of time. I was a securities broker, uh, selling stocks and bonds and other investments. Uh, a friend of mine was working for Abbott at the time, and he introduced me to his manager, a field sales manager, and encouraged me to consider pursuing an, a role that was open actually in Madison at the time in hospital sales. And to make a long story short, I decided to meet with him. Uh, he sold me on the industry and on the company. I had done quite a lot of research given my background on Abbott at the time and was extremely impressed with not only their long history, but also their uh, vision for the future as well. So I, I changed industries and, uh, joined Abbott at that time, as I mentioned, uh, I started off in hospital sales and I spent about 15 years at Abbott in various sales and marketing roles um, and uh, moved several times around uh, when I was with them as well. Great. And then, and then you moved from there to, was it direct to Hospira then from, from Abbott? 
It was, yes, correct. So after about 15 years at Abbott, I spent uh, about 11 years at Hospira. And again, uh, mostly in commercial roles with Hospira, uh, various leadership roles in both upstream and downstream marketing, both domestically in the United States, as well as uh, some global marketing roles as well. Uh, ran a number of businesses encompassing pharmaceutical, medical devices, critical care products, uh, biosimilars, uh, pharmaceutical compounding, and some of those roles were both in the US as well as uh, in Europe. Um, we lived in the UK for about three years and had a number of responsibilities, some of which I just referenced uh, while I was living in the UK. And then Hospira was actually sold to Pfizer. And so I joined Pfizer, obviously, as part of that uh, transaction and stayed with Pfizer uh, just under three years, uh, where I ran their drug product contract manufacturing business out of uh, Chicago area. Great. And I have to ask a question, whereabouts in the UK did you live, just purely from curiosity <laughs> perspective? Uh, we lived in the Midlands. So our offices were in just outside of Birmingham. Okay. Um, in a, in a city called Stratton upon, or just outside of Stratton upon Avon, in Leamington Spa. Yeah, yeah, I know it. I know it. Quite the, quite the accent that I'm sure you had to get uh, had to get used to while you were there. <laughs> it, it was. It was a wonderful experience, and you know, it was. As I mentioned before, we had moved. I think I moved about seven or eight times over my career, and I, I thought that this was going to be the most difficult move at the time. I had two teenage daughters, that one of which was in eighth grade, and the other was a sophomore in high school. And to pull daughters that age out of their schools and uh, to make a move like this, I thought would be extremely challenging. It turned out to be extremely rewarding for us, uh, all of us really. And frankly, the, the hardest move that we've had was when we moved back to the States from the UK, especially for my kids who were uh, needless to say, enjoying life in, in Europe and going back to their old school, their old friends uh, was, was a bit of a challenge for them, but it was certainly a very, very rewarding experience for me. It's, it's fascinating to hear you talking about that. I mean, uh, I, I moved to Boston a year and a half or so ago and with my wife and, and two boys and, and the conversations that we've had recently around, you know, how long do we stay in the US and when do we go back or do we go back? And um, and actually, what, exactly what you said there, what's been fascinating is um, certainly from a, a, a family perspective, and actually the kids have absolutely loved the experience of being somewhere else. And it's actually, it's a great family experience if you really lean into it. So it's, uh, it's fascinating to hear your, your story. And then I just wanted to talk about, um, obviously you joined Sharp, I think you said 15 months ago. And, and how, is, how has that first 15 months been? How, how's it gone so far? I'd say it's gone really, really well. Uh, I was certainly familiar with Sharp when I was at Pfizer and then previously at Aspira in contract manufacturing. I didn't mention this before, but I've been in contract manufacturing overall for uh, going on 10 years now of my career. And was certainly very familiar with Sharp uh, in, in, in Pfizer and in Aspira prior to that. Uh, Sharp was a packaging provider for many of the third party uh, customers that we worked with and we did sterile fill finish for at that time. So a lot of what we did ultimately got sent to Sharp for finishing and packaging and labeling. So I was very familiar with the company. 
Uh, I have been very, very pleased, of course, with the company since I've joined as well. Uh, we've been doing extremely well, uh, in, in part because you know, we've got great people, you know, very, very dedicated people within the company. And you know, frankly, as, as you know, Ramon, the industry is uh, also very robust and continues to grow. And so we've been able to uh, continue to take advantage of that and you know, keep pace, hopefully, with demand from our customers as well. Um, company and our parent company, EDG, who I referenced a few minutes ago, um, has been extremely supportive of us also. There's actually a really peculiar link to UDG that I, I got and um, UDG bought a business, uh, it must have been about 15 years ago, uh, which was the company I worked for at the time, which was a, a pharmaceutical company in the UK. And actually remarketing was ended up spinning out of that entire transaction because <laughs> we're actually here so i've actually somewhere along the line i've got udg to thank for <laughs> for the career success that i've had at remarketing which is uh which is just a peculiar link to, to udg and and i have to ask so i can't even imagine what it's like going into a business the size of, of sharp and obviously is, is udg and trying to navigate and learn about that business i'm just kind of interested to know how how do, what does that look like? So when you start a role as senior as yours, you know, president of, of such an organization, how do you go about kind of um, you know, learning about the organization? You know, how, what does that you know, roadmap look like? Well, early on, you know, every, everyone sets out a, you know, a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And um, I, I did the same. I, I'd like to say that I stuck to it pretty well, but you know, as, as you get into it, things change and you know, you get, focused on other, other priorities. Um, but I, I stuck to the plan pretty well. And certainly one, you know, one of the things that I felt was really important, it was to engage with our colleagues mm -hmm. and really get to know, you know, not only the, the people in the organization, our colleagues, but also what they do. And so I set a, an initial goal for myself to meet with, uh, I think it was 90, have 90 one-on-ones with, uh, 90 people in 90 days. <laughs> wow. And I ended up meeting with over 100 people in the first 30 days. And <laughs> so, so that, that helped a lot. Um, it spent, you know, because we are in a manufacturing type environment, um, you know, we're essentially 24-7 operations in all the facilities that I mentioned. And so I had a lot of opportunity as well to just spend time on the floor uh, observing our, our work and talking to people about what works for them and what their challenges are and really just getting to know not only the, the people and, and what we do, but I think more importantly, the culture. And I have to say that the culture was similar to companies that I had come from uh, previously and, and certainly in a service industry like we're in, mm -hmm. um, people that understand why we do what we do and understand the importance of meeting our commitments to our customers because there are patients at the end of everything we do. And uh, what, what I found to be a, a little bit different and, and to some degree, uh, you know, really a motivating factor for myself and others is because we are doing the final packaging and labeling of product, we are the last ones to touch it before it is administered to a patient. And so with that comes a, a significant amount of responsibility, needless to say. Uh, but that's really how I started. And then, you know, I had the benefit of working for some really great companies in my career leading up to joining Sharp. 
and you know really try to take those best learnings from those companies and and try to apply them to sharp which you know you you alluded you know that sharp's fairly large we have about roughly 1800 employees uh in globally uh, which is actually pretty small compared to where i came from um, so really the, the challenge was was less for me anyway was less about working with a large company but rather how do we build robust processes for a smaller and fast growing company, which is what we've been dealing with at Sharp. That's a, it's fascinating to hear that. And, it, it, and in the context of a company like Pfizer, you know, 1800 people being a pretty small company is, uh, is, is so interesting. And, and, I, and I know it's that, you know, in, in researching before speaking with you, Kevin, there seems to be a huge amount of investment and activity going on at Sharp uh, this year. And, um, I see that you've recently acquired a new site in, in Pennsylvania and you know, investments have been made in your site in Wales and Belgium and Netherlands. And there seems to be some really positive activity that's going on. Can you share a little bit more about, I suppose, the, the reasons behind the investment and I suppose what that's going to enable Sharp to do kind of moving forward? Sure. So let me answer that in two ways. One, as I mentioned, we have two somewhat distinct segments of our business, the clinical business and our commercial packaging business as well. And while there is some overlap, um, they, there are also a lot of distinction, distinctions excuse me, between them. Um, you touched on it briefly, Ramon, just a minute ago, but the clinical business really has started over, even though the, the legacy businesses have been in place for a number of years, uh, there was a need to upgrade our sites in both Pennsylvania, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, as well as in the UK. And so we essentially built or bought new facilities in, in both markets and reestablished the business, the clinical businesses in each of those facilities um, last year. And so as you pointed out, there's, there was a considerable amount of investment in each of those sites. And there's, it's starting to pay off now. Um, they, again, they kind of had to restart uh, a bit. And in, in the case of the UK, it was a brand new building. In the case of the Bethlehem, Pennsylvania site, it was owned by a pharmaceutical company previously. Uh, we took it over and uh, ended up you know, doing a lot of renovation work inside, obviously, to better meet our needs. So a lot of investment went into that. We had. Uh, grand openings or ribbon cutting uh, ceremonies at both those sites uh, late last year. And so we're really proud of the work that we've done at both of those sites and look forward to a great future um, serving customers and patients out of those sites. On the commercial packaging side, you referenced a, an acquisition that we made recently. And it, it, was a, it was a small acquisition, but let me take you back to why we did it. And then I'll explain it briefly. But uh, you know, I mentioned my 30, 60, 90 day plan when I started last year at Sharp. And, and one of the uh, dynamics in the business and within Sharp in particular that derailed that a little bit was the incredible demand we had for our services on the commercial packaging side. And so we spent a, a lot of last summer dealing with significant supply and capacity challenges. And so we, we set on a path at that point to add capacity. And so we started looking at 
a lot of different opportunities and options to add capacity and uh, ultimately ran across coincidentally a company that was a, that was fairly similar to what we do in pharmaceutical packaging that had a facility only about six or seven miles from our one of our main sites in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And it just so happened that they were looking to divest that site in that portion of their business. So we did acquire that. We closed on it on May 15th. And it's added a significant amount of uh, existing capacity due to the fact that they already had equipment in place. Mm -hmm. And also they have a significant amount of unused space in their building that we will continue to put new equipment in as well. And, you know, all that's led to a need to hire a lot more people. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, despite the high unemployment rates and the issues that we've all been dealing with uh, due to COVID, we have been on an aggressive um, hiring campaign, uh, in particular in Pennsylvania. And we've had good success in bringing in, uh, you know, a, a number of skilled people in really important positions for us. And we will continue on that campaign for the foreseeable future uh, to continue to help us, you know, meet the growing needs of our customers. Uh, it's great. It's great to hear. I have to say, you know, um, I think it was this morning it came out here that unemployment's almost at 20% in the U.S. So businesses like yours, Kevin, that are continuing to recruit and you know bring people into jobs, I think is such a, a great thing at, at this time. And um, and I have to just ask a question. You you mentioned something there about kind of around kind of the supply and demand and the increased demand for your services. Are you able to share what specifically or what continues to kind of drive that demand is are there kind of macro factors at, at play here or is it a specific capability that you have it's just i'm just curious to know you know why is shop so in demand <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a really good question i i it, i would attribute it to a number of things um at a, at a macro level you know the market continues to grow very quickly and so we are well positioned to take advantage of that. The fact that Sharp has been around for a long time, I didn't mention this before, but Sharp was founded in the 1950s in the Conshohocken, Pennsylvania area that I mentioned before. And it started off as a printing company. And the, the gentleman who started the company, his last name was Sharp. Um, he started doing package inserts for the pharmaceutical industry and that's how we got into pharma and then eventually started to phase out the printing aspect of the business and get into more packaging. So Sharp is very well established in the industry. You know, the name has been out there for five years or so. And so we're well known. Uh, we have a certainly a good reputation, not only with our customers, but also with regulators, you know, very, very good compliance record. And so that's helped. And, and certainly, I think anybody that's in this industry in particular knows that it's somewhat of a cottage industry, meaning that, you know, you, you don't have to know that many people necessarily to know everybody. Mm -hmm. And we're very well networked um, really across the company and, you know, with, with, you know, with many of our customers as well. And uh, we have a lot of extremely loyal partners as well and customers that you know continue to bring new opportunities to us so that's really driven a lot of the demand i, I think you, you you were also kind of asking where 
the growth is, if I'm not mistaken, Ramon. Yeah, and, yeah. And this, this is not at all uh, unusual, but, you know, certainly more and more of the development that's taking place within the industry is focused on biologics, uh, gene therapy, cell therapies, and more specialty medicines, more niche, orphan, rare disease kinds of drugs. And because of the fact that they're, sm they're large molecule drugs as opposed to small molecule chemically derived drugs, there's a lot more complexity, of course, but the majority of them are in either liquid or freeze-dried lyophilized forms, mm -hmm. and they're in vials or pre-filled syringes. And so our company in particular is invested heavily to try to keep pace with that growth in those formats. And, and so, you know, we, we continue to, th those are by far our fastest growing segments of our business is um, uh, working with biologics that are in vials in particular, and also in pre-filled syringes. We, we do a lot of um, assembly of auto injectors and pens that contain the cartridges and pre-filled syringes in them as well. And so really, I think that the company, and this is certainly before my time, mm -hmm. um, but was very, I think, uh, insightful in terms of where they saw the market going and the industry going and, and that put a lot of investment in to try to stay ahead of it and, and or keep pace with it. Yeah, it seems like a good position to be in where you've got that kind of core competence and I suppose heritage of the small molecule work. But as you said, that, that kind of fast growing but more complex personalized part of the market where you guys have got that capability and expertise to be able to assist clients in that area. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. So I just wanted to kind of shift away from sector things and talk a little bit more about you specifically. And, you know, I look at someone like yourself and, you know, you have a, you know, a phenomenal career trajectory from, from obviously where you've come from to the, the leadership role that you have now. Is there, is there one particular skill that you would say that you attributed that success to? Is there something within your, uh, your makeup or something that you've developed along the way that's, that's enabled you to, to have such a successful leadership career? Yeah, I, I think it would be a, a little difficult to sort of point to a, a specific skill, mm -hmm. uh, but but I, I think there's a number of things I guess I could point to that I would attribute my success to uh, to this point. Uh, one is uh, you know having a good work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, coming from the Midwestern United States, um, you know that's something that's kind of uh, ingrained in people uh, in that part of the country, and uh, certainly that served me well. I, I touched on this before, Robin, but I'll, I guess I'll say it again, and that is, you know, 30 years ago when I got in, when I joined Apple Laboratories and got into the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I didn't know anything about the industry, really. And so I've been very fortunate to have worked for some great companies over my career, including probably when I was most impressionable, which was that first 15 years or so of my career when I worked for Abbott. And you know, it's a, an incredibly well-run company mm -hmm. and that, that uh, you know, isn't happenstance. And so some of the skills that I think I learned and, and continue to value when I was from there 
is, you know, really establishing um, good business processes. Um, I touched on this a little bit with Sharp, but, you know, Sharp's grown very quickly over the last four or five years. And, you know, frankly, a lot of the business processes that, that we had or have were not necessarily scalable to the size of business we even have today, much less the size of the business we may have in the next four or five years. And so really focusing on business process, I think is really important. And then also focusing on what ultimately is important. I think we all tend to, to get pulled in a lot of different directions and tend to get distracted. And it, there's a lot of time spent that may not necessarily be productive. And so what I've always done is you know, really kept my head down and tried to focus and also lead the organization to focus on things that are important and are, and are the priorities and not necessarily get distracted by other things that aren't necessarily gonna add value ultimately to our stakeholders. I think for me personally, you know, operating with a high level of integrity, always doing the right thing and treating people fairly and with respect have uh, certainly served me very well also. Great. I mean, some, some really kind of key touch points there around kind of work ethic and kind of, I love what you said there about um, focusing on the important. <laughs> it's something I say to my kids all the time. Do the important, <laughs> I literally do the important thing first and then you can play. This <laughs> is my daily conversation with my children. Uh, but I love it. I mean, from a productivity perspective, I absolutely agree. You know, I think uh, and that you're able to manage that on a business uh, or kind of a scale size of, of, of sharp is, is great and, and is there is there anything I think you know one of the things I see is people look at, at business leaders and almost think that they are perfect right that they have no flaws in their game and so I'm curious to know is there is there anything you know from a competence or skill perspective that you actually have to work on yourself uh, that you're constantly aware of you know I, I need to get better at this or constantly improve this is there anything that you're always kind of working on improving yeah, it's probably a pretty long list. I know we don't have a lot of time, so <laughs> I'll focus on a couple. Uh, you know, I, I think one is to, it, for me, it's a bit challenging to stay connected with people that I'm not physically around all the time. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's friends or colleagues or, you know, uh, customers, you know, people outside of our company, um, and it, it takes a lot of effort and granted there's, you know, social media to help us with that, like LinkedIn, for example, but it, all of that takes work and, but I do think it's very useful and very valuable. And so that's one thing that I, that I have to, have to, you know, you know, make an effort to work on. Um, another thing I would point out is it's, it's easy to assume that if you communicate something once that it's communicated and that it's heard understood and so i have to continue to remind myself that just because i said it once or just because i put it in a an email communication once that it's resonating with everybody in our organization or even with customers for that matter and so you know continuing to you know really try to understand the the importance of communication and then continuing to reinforce um, certain elements of it as well in, in various venues and in formats. You know, some people don't read emails. Um, some people may, you know, look at a two-page memo and, and think that it's too long and they set it aside and they never pick it up again. 
Um, you know, other people will sit in a, an all staff meeting or a town hall and, you know, they'll, they'll fall asleep. And, <laughs> you know, just because you said it or you communicated it doesn't necessarily mean that it's resonating. And so that's something that, that, that I, you know, have to continue to remind myself uh, to, yeah. to try to go back out and, and reemphasize things that are important and also not waste time. People are busy. And, and so not waste time. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good writer and, you know, I could easily write a two or three page memo, but are people going to read a two or three page memo and is it really value add? And so, you know, trying to communicate effectively as well and in the shortest amount of time and the shortest number of words are, I think, really important for people to, you know, really understand what's important, uh, at least from my perspective and what, you know, we're asking them to do ultimately. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's quite fascinating. As you, you mentioned right at the start, you talked to, uh, you mentioned some kind of marketing roles that you did. And honestly, I could spend an entire hour speaking to you about just marketing related things. And it, it's, it's fascinating to hear some of the things you talk about are of almost of a marketing mindset of, you know, communications and reinforcement and different mediums and that type of thing. So maybe that's just ingrained in your experience of thinking about these types of things. Cause I don't think every leader actually necessarily thinks like that. So that's quite, it's quite interesting to see that based on, on your experience. And it, if, um, let me just ask you, if you could go back and give your 25 year old self some advice, what would you say to them? I, I would probably say number one, <laughs> or, or, or to me, uh, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, number one, and I have been accused of doing that in the past. Uh, but at the same time, take control of your career as well. Um, it, you know, I think, I think if you do the right thing and, you know, you work hard, you perform well, um, you treat people fairly, you know, generally speaking, I think your, your career is going to progress, um, but it may not necessarily go the way that you, you want or expect it to. So I think you do have to have some control of your career. And there was an old saying, I, I don't know where it originated. I think it was a life insurance company um, back in the 80s that coined the phrase, people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. And, <laughs> right? Uh, and and I, 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 that's stuck with me for a very, very long time. And I, I think there's, there's truth to that. Mm -hmm. And if I were telling myself when I was 25 years old, that's something that I would also tell myself is, you know, you don't have to plan every detail of your life, but also, you know, don't take it for granted either that everything's going to work out the way you want it to. You, you do have to have some control uh, over your, well, certainly over your career. I think that's great advice. And um, one kind of, I suppose, um, consistent thing that I'm, I'm seeing from, from leaders like yourself who I'm having the opportunity to speak to is, is this type of, you said, take control where opportunities arise. And if I look at your career, you, you've, you've gone at the right time and you've moved at the right time. And even if it's meant taking risks and moving your family, it's still within your control. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for, the leaders that actually do that tend to, um, or people that do that tend to uh, do very well in their careers and take advantage of the opportunities that arise rather than have any regrets in the future that they didn't take those chances. So you certainly strike me as, as one of those. And, and, and how would your best friend describe you in three words, Kevin? 
Uh, I'd rather not say, actually. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I'm not sure it's three words, but um, I, I think he would, he would call me a politician. And I, I say that not necessarily, or not because I'm dishonest or I never tell the truth <laughs> that some politicians have been accused of, but rather uh, I, I rarely say or do anything that's politically incorrect. I, I rarely cross the line, so to speak, uh, mm -hmm. if ever. And so uh, that's probably how he or they, multiple friends, I think, would describe me. Um, my mother was a politician and she was a great role model for me in that regard. That's great. great and then I know we've got a few more minutes left. So I did want to talk about the kind of sector at large. And um, I know we talked a little bit about kind of demand at Sharp, but what kind of big industry trends and changes that you're seeing going on right now? And I was actually going to ask you about, I know, um, say you guys are in the injectables um, kind of cold chain part of the, the sector as well. You deal with different batch sizes and that type of thing. So I'm just curious if you can be as granular as you want and just kind of talk about some of the big stuff and, and how that's actually impacting your business at, at the moment. Well, you, you actually, Ramon, touched on a couple of key trends right there and I'll, I'll provide some additional color around them, but I, I think you're spot on. And you know, certainly anybody that's in the industry is certainly familiar with what I would say as it relates to some of the big trends and shifts in the industry. But um, we're in a unique time now, of course, with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And from, a, from an industry standpoint, you know, we're, we're seeing intense focus on pharma and biotech companies around the world trying to develop not only vaccines, but also antibodies for COVID-19. And so with that, you know, there is a profound shift in the R&D focus of those companies and also the allocation of resources really across the industry. And, and while I think that's going to pay significant dividends for us as a population, when those vaccines and antibodies start to hit the market, um, it, like anything, it, it, it's going to take away from focus in other areas. And so I think we, we need to be aware of that. Uh, but I, I don't, I think, you know, part of the challenge in that regard is that the sheer number of treatments that are going to need to be available for people around the world is staggering. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, for example, if you look at influenza treatments on an annual basis, and my numbers are, are rough, but there's roughly 150 million influenza vaccinations in the US each fall and about 200 million, I wanna say in Europe, again, mm -hmm. ballpark. Um, the numbers that companies are talking about that are developing vaccines are talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions or billions mm -hmm. of units. And so that's going to have a significant impact on you know, supply. There just isn't that much capacity in the industry overall to support all the existing treatments that are out there, drugs that are out there, and another two or three or four billion doses for COVID. Mm -hmm. And so from my standpoint, I think we're just keeping a close eye on that because there's both upstream and downstream ramifications of that um, and to some degree, I'm a little concerned about it, 
because of just the, I think what is going to be an extremely challenging time for the industry to, to supply all of that and still supply all of the important medically necessary products that we all need, you know, individually, our families, our communities, et cetera. So that's a huge trend that's underway. Um, a, a trend that's been in the works for a while, of course, and you alluded to this, Ramon, as well, is the continued shift in focus to biologics and, and smaller batch sizes, specialized treatments for smaller patient populations. And from a contract manufacturing perspective, or even from a, phar a pharmaceutical company manufacturing perspective, a lot of the manufacturing plants and assets around the world were scaled for much, much larger products um, with significantly higher unit volumes and very, very large batch sizes ranging from hundreds of thousands to even millions of units. And that's not the future. Um, the future is specialty medications um, that you know, may have batch sizes of five or 10 or 20,000 units. And mm -hmm. so in our business and across the industry, I think everyone is trying to adapt to those, those changes. And while the, the value of those medicines is substantially higher, of course, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, they're from a, purely from a manufacturing standpoint, um, they, they don't necessarily fit well with the infrastructure that's in the industry right now. So that's a trend that we all are, you know, trying to uh, adapt to over time uh, with new investments and just a new way of thinking about how we manufacture. Uh, th thanks for sharing those. I think those are absolutely key. And uh, I think the, the first one you talked about, the kind of, I suppose, the COVID impact is fascinating. I mean, I read an article this week around there, there aren't going to be enough vials. <laughs> we cannot produce enough vials globally to be able to deal with the you know, billions of, of vaccines, which is a, is a challenge I don't think any of us expected to have in 2020. But he, here we are. And I'm conscious that we're, we're almost out of time. And I just wanted to ask, you know, are you able to share any exciting things coming up at Sharp? I know there's been lots of recent investments and, and also if there's any other kind of comments or requests or messages that you've got for, for our audience that listen to the podcast. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is um, sitting, sitting in, in my chair, um, I have to say I'm very, very encouraged by what I've seen and heard both in terms of publicly available information as well as perhaps uh, more, uh, you know, inside information, but, and I'm extremely optimistic that a number of companies are going to be successful at um, developing and ultimately supplying uh, vaccines and antibodies for, for COVID. Um, so that's extremely encouraging from my standpoint. Um, aside from that, specific to Sharp, you know, we talked a little bit about the trends already, but, you know, one of the things that that we are starting to focus on in, in some of our sister divisions within UDG, um, the company is called Ashfield Health, by the way, and they've got uh, a number of businesses that are, that are also uh, in the healthcare space. And one of the things that, that we're starting to see and that we're starting to plan for is if, if for those of us that have been around for a while, you know, back in the early 90s, late 90s, there was a shift from 
care being provided in acute care in a, in acute care setting like a hospital to more alternate site facilities like surgery surgery centers and uh, um, clinics and things like that and that that shift of course has continued as more and more care is being provided outside of hospitals in other areas i think we're starting to go through another shift now and frankly i think it's to some degree it's being facilitated by the situation that we're in now with COVID-19, and that is a shift into treatment in patients' homes. And so we've already seen one pretty significant shift, which I, which I think will be material over time, and that is offering care in retail pharmacy settings, such as what Walgreens and CVS are doing. And an extension of that would be, why not treat patients in their homes? And it's, it's one thing to do it if, if it's an oral solid, you know, a, a tablet or a capsule, that's something that's, that's pretty easy as long as you can ensure compliance with whatever the protocol is. Uh, but it gets more complicated when it's an injectable drug, uh, yeah. for example. And so you need to have both the nurses, the caregivers prepared to provide that care in patients' homes, but also to get the medications directly to the patient's homes as well. So we're doing more direct to patient uh, deliveries, especially when it comes to clinical trials. And we're seeing a trend, I think, to, to, to uh, willingness from the pharmaceutical companies in particular to, to do more clinical trial work in the homes as long as they can maintain compliance to their protocols as well. So I think that's an interesting trend um, for sure. And I think it's a, it's a great place to end kind of talking about the impact direct on patients. And Kevin, I have to say, I could ask you questions all day. You are a very compelling guest and your knowledge of the, the industry and your experience and yeah, the way you talk about things uh, you know, with respect to the outsourcing space is, is genuinely really, really fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on to Molecule to Market. I hope you've enjoyed your time <laughs> on the show today. I have, thank you very much for your time as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And the last thing I could say, if, if I can. Sure, yeah, go ahead. We, we are in an essential industry, and fortunately, not, not, not just Sharp, but in, in pharmaceuticals and medical device um, supply in general. And we have, of course, been asked to and have had to work through uh, this COVID situation um, and keep our manufactured facilities running. And so the ask I would have for everyone listening to this is to thank those people uh, to, from, you know, for working in this industry and continuing to provide critical medications that all of our families, friends, and communities rely on every day. I think that's a really important point and thank you for sharing that as well. Kevin, thank you for being on the show. Please stay safe. All right, man. Thank you. Cheers. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter and we will see you again next week. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing. 
an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.